Polish-Australian Business Forum presents Unity Stories about us Twenty twenty two marks fifty years of diplomatic relations between Poland and Australia. I am Leonie Tillman, and I'll be interviewing ten notable Australians of Polish heritage across business, science, and the arts about their stories. We now invite you to celebrate our unity. Stories about us. Bartłomiej Kowalczyk has had an amazing international career in engineering and electronics, through nanotechnology and increasingly in sustainability. He recently received the Advance Award for the work he's done in sustainability. And he starts out by telling us about that award and what that means for him. Yes, so uh, Advance Awards is supported by Australian government and basically aims to recognise Australians that do uh, extraordinary, I guess, things in, in many different fields. In particular, my award was in sustainability field uh, because I've been involved in renewable energy for a uh, for number of years, as well as hydrogen, but also other environmental causes. So, yeah, that, that, that was a big achievement. The overall winner, the, the award was actually presented by uh, Scott Morrison. So that was a big deal. Yeah, very exciting. Um, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, I couldn't be there, um, you know, purely because of COVID, but also I was actually away during that time. I was I was in Europe. So the awards were held live or they were actually remote? Uh, I believe partially they were held live, but, um, you know, winners and, and different uh, basically attendees were actually um, encouraged to attend uh, virtually. Yeah, the hybrid of the new world. Yes. <laughs> so what does this award mean for you and your career going forward? I, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's just a recognition of uh, what I've been doing for the last 15 or so years. And, uh, you know, it, it basically um, kind of tells me that what I have done is uh, kind of unique on uh, Australian level um, in, in sustainability. And um, yeah, it basically encourages me to, uh, to continue doing what I've been doing or maybe, um, do even better things. Yeah. So what are you doing? I guess nanoscientist and inventor might be the best ways to describe you, but how do you describe yourself? Um, look, I, I don't, I don't really know. So, you know, um, I, I've been doing many different things, uh, over the years, uh, renewable energy, but also, um, Nanotechnology, obviously, as you mentioned, I have also done some biosensors. I created a startup in the U.S. Uh, basically aimed at uh, commercializing biosensors. I have also done a lot of uh, work in policy, um, in innovation, in science, but also in uh, climate change and environmental causes. So, you know, a, a bit of everything. Uh, I guess, you know, um, Traditionally, people basically try to find their field and, and stick to it and kind of progress in, in that uh, single field. I've been doing a couple different things, so it's it's quite different. But um, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, that diversity. Yeah, I understand that you've got two PhDs, one in material engineering and another one in microelectronics. Is that correct? Uh, yes, correct. And so why two PhDs? 
the, the second one was actually uh, a bit of a freebie. Um, you know, I spent some time in France doing research and uh, French government has this program where, um, you know, if you do um, spend some time doing, doing um, research in France during your PhD, they, they may award you uh, another PhD. So, uh, you know, here in Australia, I was developing conducting polymers mainly for energy applications. And um, in France, I was actually uh, using those conducting polymers in uh, uh, bioelectronics. So mainly biosensors, but also, uh, you know, brain electrodes and, and, and um, similar applications. So, you know, the, the, the same material, but two different applications. And for that reason, I got two PhDs. I also have, um, you know, uh, six masters in uh, many different fields, uh, very diverse from... Uh, mechanical engineering to, uh, um, you know, um, renewable energy science, uh, European studies as well. Um, so, you know, I, I basically wanted to explore many different fields. And uh, yeah, somehow uh, by now I got six different masters. Bartuemi has a natural curiosity about the world and people and cultures. And I ask him where this curiosity started from. You know, I, I was actually thinking about it um, a while ago. And, uh, you know, when I was born um, in Poland, Poland was still a communist country. I don't really remember communism, but, um, you know, I, I effectively grew up in uh, post-communist Poland. So um, things were limited, you know, we couldn't easily travel overseas. So, you know, um, it, it was quite hermetic and uh, constrained to your um, local kind of community. And um, I guess that, that, that really ignited my uh, curiosity. So, you know, I always wanted to travel, kind of meet different people, learn different uh, languages, see how different cultures basically uh, um, react and, and how they, um, you know, operate. And uh, um, yeah, I was, I was basically um, curious, probably because at that very early age, I was kind of uh, not, not given that opportunity. So, you know, um, when I was in um, uh, university, I actually started traveling extensively. And uh, in that case, I, I managed to actually combine, um, you know, traveling with um, personal development, whether that was education or kind of, uh, you know, internships or, or work experience or, or similar things. And, um, you know, b before actually coming to Australia, I have lived in, um, I think, five different countries. So, Obviously, Poland. I'm not counting Poland in because that, that's where I was born. But I also lived in uh, Hungary. I lived in Spain. I lived in Denmark. I lived in the UK for some time. And um, even in Iceland, you know, just, just before um, coming to Australia for the first time, I was, I was actually in Iceland. So <laughs> I was flying from Reykjavik to, to Melbourne. I can't even imagine what it's like in Iceland. I'd love to go there. <laughs> what were you there for? Was it for work or just an experience? No, so, so look, after my um, studies in Poland, I took this job that was my first job out of uni. It was in Denmark. I was basically working for a company that developed solar systems. And during that time, I also got exposed to uh, hydrogen. We had a project on, on hydrogen system. I got kind of, um, I guess, intrigued and, uh, you know, excited about opportunities that hydrogen brings and also how... Um, immature that field was back then 
to to learn more, I actually decided to uh, to leave this job and uh, I applied for masters in Iceland. So that was in uh, renewable energy science with a focus in uh, fuel cell systems and hydrogen. And Iceland was probably the best place to study renewables back then. That was over a decade ago. Because majority of uh, electricity in Iceland comes either from geothermal or from um, hydropower. Uh, not many people are aware, but uh, the very first hydrogen refilling station was actually developed by Shell and a few other parties in, uh, in Reykjavik, in the capital of, of Iceland. And it is this work in hydrogen and renewable energies that led Bartuomi to work with Fortescue Metals, one of Australia's biggest mining companies. Fortescue Metals Group is traditionally a mining company, but uh, in, in particular, iron ore mining company. But I guess because of this uh, massive success of, of the company over the last 18 years, our leadership decided to explore other um, revenue streams. And, uh, you know, initially it was purely in uh, mineral resources. Uh, but but uh, even more recently, you know, uh, we decided to explore uh, renewables and in particular production of green hydrogen and green ammonia. So that's when um, Fortescue Future Industries was uh, created. And, uh, you know, at Fortescue Future Industries, we are looking at uh, um, developing very large scale renewable energy projects to, uh, um, you know, enable um, green hydrogen and green ammonia economy globally. And so your role is chief scientist, is that correct? Yes, correct. So what are you responsible for there? Is it about innovating because you're an inventor and an innovator or is it driving a team? Is it more a leadership role? I, I, I guess both. Uh, you know, um, Fortescue is quite dynamic place. It's, it's also very different in terms of culture and how we do things. So, uh, you know... Um, I'm responsible for technologies, enabling technologies, as we call them, to make sure that, uh, you know, um, that this entire value chain can happen. We need basically investment in technologies and technology development. Um, so, um, you know, I'm looking after different technologies. We are also doing R&D internally to develop some of those technologies. Um, and, and effectively, you know, um, it's, it's a leadership role, but also kind of a, intrapreneurship role um, you know I'm kind of um, entrepreneur internally so you know uh, I, I get um, a lot of flexibility and uh, a lot of space to um, explore different things so that, that's really good. Yeah you mentioned intrapreneur and I know that you're also an entrepreneur you said that you've started three tech startups can you tell us a bit about those are they in Australia or are they elsewhere? Um, they were actually elsewhere, so um, they were mainly related to uh, um, renewables again, um, although one of them um, was actually in uh, biosensing space. So in that case, um, you know, um, I developed a, a gluten biosensor that can um, quantify, detect and quantify amount of gluten in the food. Um, that was done in the U.S. Uh, during my uh, postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University. And um, uh, gluten intolerance and celiac disease are big issues. You know, uh, back then when I was developing that sensor, um, you know, uh, that, that was 2016, 2015, 2016. Um, celiac um, disease and, and gluten intolerance were kind of uh, 
you know, in mainstream media. Um, somehow these days we kind of forgot about those mm-hmm. issues, but uh, back then they were, you know, on daily basis kind of mentioned. Um, so so it, it was kind of, um, you know, hot topic to, to develop that uh, gluten biosensor. There was nothing alike um, in, in the space. So, um, you know, people that basically have uh, celiac disease, if they eat um, food that contains gluten, they can basically end up in hospital or even worse. So, um, you know, it's it's very important to actually have this uh, degree of uh, safety, another degree of safety. There are many restaurants that, you know, tell you, oh, it's, it's gluten-free, but really it's not. Uh, there is still some small amount of gluten. So understanding how much gluten um, there is in the food and uh, being able to quantify it uh, reliably and, and um, you know, quickly because mm. because that that sensor basically was quite responsive um you, you could basically um quantify how much gluten there is in the food in um in terms of minutes um so um yeah that th- that was really good but uh same time i kind of missed australia my my fiance was uh was still here in in melbourne currently my wife um so after a year in the us i basically decided to come back um, my, my other uh, startup was actually uh, a wind technology company that was based in uh, Israel. So, um, you know, it kind of failed because it was uh, early in the days, but uh, uh, it, it was quite interesting. I think these days, you know, renewables are attracting a lot of uh, attention. There is a lot of money in the, in the field. So um, it, it actually got to a point where, you know, um, Sometimes or weekly, um, on weekly basis, I'm, I'm basically approached by different uh, VC firms asking if I have something um, investable. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite funny because uh, last time when I checked, it was the <laughs> other way around. But uh, Well, once you start winning some awards, you start attracting some attention, I imagine. <laughs> and I'd like to also link back to the annual Indigenous Forum. Is that your initiative? Yeah, so... Um, when, when I returned uh, back to Australia from US, you know, um, I, I've been involved in uh, policy making with UN, with uh, G20, uh, so group of 20, um, you know, with um, OECD and um, IUCN, as well as some other organizations. Uh, and, uh, you know, coming from, um, I guess, academia originally, um, I kind of managed to... Uh, find my way to, to uh, you know, um, provide advice and expertise to those uh, international organizations. And I created a not-for-profit organization once I returned back to Australia called Scientists in Residence uh, because I wanted to basically show um, Australian academics that there are also um, other um, career pathways. Uh, so in particular, kind of train them how to... Uh, engage with uh, policymaking, both on a local, uh, national, but also international level. And, uh, you know, um, we, we also run uh, workshops and uh, science outreach activities. And because of that uh, broad nature of, of our work, we also decided to actually engage um, with uh, indigenous community. And we created this uh, indigenous uh, sustainability forum to kind of uh, showcase how um, indigenous communities in Australia have been uh, basically deploying uh, sustainability practices 
you know, uh, very simple ones, but very effective. Uh, you can call them um, nearly uh, nature-based solutions because, you know, that they are so simple. And uh, in many cases, they actually, uh, you know, involve uh, nature to, to basically prevent climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, by, by doing that, by basically bringing this uh, indigenous community with non-indigenous community, we basically wanted to, first of all, show this traditional knowledge and sustainability practices, but also kind of close this, this gap between um, indigenous and non-indigenous community. So um, it's been going great until COVID. Um, you know, we, we cannot um, hold uh, forums or uh, meetings um, in person. So... It's been difficult, but uh, previous um, editions have been a uh, great And success. is that somewhere, are you working with one particular community or is it a range of communities that you're working with? The way it's done, we bring basically different um, Indigenous experts and I- Indigenous leaders to uh, um, kind of tell um, stories how, um, you know, different sustainability practices, although they, they wouldn't call them that, you know, for, for them, it's basically traditional knowledge or kind of, you know, uh, daily practices have been deployed by their grandfathers and, and even, um, you know, um, indigenous communities uh, long before um, European settlers arrived. So uh, but by basically showcasing those uh, extremely simple but uh, very effective practices, you know, uh, to uh, non-Indigenous communities, we actually uh, show that, uh, you know, that there is a lot of value and uh, a lot of knowledge that you can learn uh, by engaging with each other. And does this have a policy element to it as well? Not at this point, but look, I, I, gave, I gave a talk once at a UN meeting in, uh, in Bangkok, in Thailand, and, and they were very interested in, uh, you know, engaging indigenous communities and kind of, uh, you know, getting their voice uh, and, and understanding what they are doing in uh, climate change space and sustainability space. But so, so there is obviously interest, but I guess, again, because of COVID, you know, uh, it didn't materialize. Bartuomi now has his life predominantly in Australia and has a young family here. I asked him about what were the events that led to him having an interest in Australia and ultimately ending up here. Um, so it's actually a funny story because um, back in Poland, I was uh, president of local um, uh, committee of um, IST. IST is basically international organization with national uh, committees in 88 countries, I believe. Wow. So um, it, it stands for um, International Association for Exchange of Students for Technical Experience. So effectively, um, it's one of the oldest international kind of exchange associations. It was created just after Second World War. And the idea was to uh, basically build, again, capacity and understanding between uh, membership countries, but also to kind of exchange students and learn about cultures. Same time, you know, enabling those students that basically study technical or engineering degrees to gain uh, practical experience in different countries. So the way it operates is that those 88 countries basically collect internship offers in their countries locally uh, from different companies and different organizations. Universities are also involved. 
And then every year there is basically annual meeting where those delegates meet and they exchange those offers one for one. Sometimes it can be two for one mm. if uh, offer is really good. So you can you can bargain. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I was I was involved in um, EIST and we actually had a trainee from Melbourne. He was basically working for a construction company in my city. Mm. So that, that's that's Jeshu. Mm. Um, that, that's where I was born and um, I went to university. Uh, J- James basically came for three months. Um, he liked it so much that he stayed for a year. <laughs> And, um, you know, he, he uh, basically my family invited him for Christmas. So, Beautiful. you know, we, we basically traveled around. He became a really good friend. So I always wanted to visit Australia. And d- during my master's in Iceland, we were given opportunity to uh, actually go and do a master thesis research elsewhere, including abroad. And I was like, okay, maybe it's time to go to Australia finally. And Melbourne was pretty much straightforward peak because uh, James was here. So I had this point of contact. Mm. And um, yeah, I basically uh, emailed a few professors at Monash um, University. They invited me and I came over initially for four months. So it was, again, um, supposed to be a short adventure, but I decided to stay longer. I was offered a PhD scholarship and I decided to, to continue my Australian experience. Same time, um, it, it's quite funny because when I was here in Melbourne, um, you know, my supervisors during my um, master thesis, they actually tried to convince me really hard to stay and do my PhD. But same time, I had another PhD already aligned in Switzerland. I told them, oh, I'm going to Switzerland. And I actually went back to Iceland um, when I arrived in Iceland, it was uh, February. So, um, you know, everything was white. Everything was covered by snow, very cold. I, a uh, few, few days before that, I was actually at, at the beach. So I defended my thesis. One of my um, supervisors, um, he basically called me after that. And he was like, so when are you coming back? And I was like, oh, I told you I'm not coming back. But then I looked through the window and everything is covered by snow. And I was like... <laughs> Oh, Switzerland will be the same. Like, okay, organize it. I will come back. So, you Easy know, one. It, was, it, was, it was very spontaneous. What are the values then that, that are attractive about Australia, despite the weather being moderately appealing? Are there values that are attractive about Australia? Um, yes. So weather is one, but probably not most important. When I firstly arrived in Australia, I kind of realized that uh, it was very modern and progressive. But also uh, people actually uh, are very easygoing and they they kind of uh, value life, they value family more than uh, they value their work. Um, That probably has changed slightly over that last decade since I arrived. But I I also lived in the U.S. and uh, after a year, I I basically couldn't stand it. Uh, It was so different and... uh, you know, it's U.S. is all about money and uh, work. You know, Australia is, is uh, completely reverse. It's probably uh, about family and kind of having a um, chilled life. So uh, I guess that, that makes Australia uh, very attractive. It's, it's also very different, you know. Animals and, and plants are completely different compared to uh, other places, Um so that, that, that also kind of uh, drives this curiosity to go and explore. It's also so big and, uh, you know, Victoria is very different, for example, from uh, Western Australia. 
you have basically rainforests, you have uh, deserts. So it's 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 really um, unique um, in terms of landscape, uh, I guess, work-life balance and uh, and effectively values, Australian values. Mm. Can if you did have to list them, what would they be? I mean, you're talking about work-life value and, and family values. What about in terms of leadership and what you see in the workplace? Australia also developed this uh, unique leadership. Um, you know, it's it's very different compared to uh, leadership deployed in uh, other parts of the world where I uh, used to work. It's probably um, much softer and uh, kind of more empowering, and I really like that. You know, it's it's also a lot of uh, Australian leadership is driven by uh, ethics. And that kind of uh, resonates very well with me. Recently, I also learned about a new type of leadership, which is called uh, wise leadership. Um, So I I would probably call Australian leadership a bit like wise leadership. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So so, um, it's it's actually difficult to to describe it. But, you know, it's it's basically... um, you know, you have uh, knowledge, you have intelligence, you can be smart, but being wise is, is something kind of completely different. But it kind of um, combines all those um, d- different things. So being smart, intelligent, etc. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, Australian leadership really kind of uh, deploys that ethical and wise leadership because uh Many things that basically, uh, many decisions that are made at uh, Australian companies and organizations are basically driven by this this, uh, ethical and wise kind of decision making, I would say. And most of your career has been conducted abroad or, or outside of Poland. But if you did have to sum up Polish values, how would you do that? Poland is... uh, you know, I guess another extreme, I, I really like uh, the way Polish people kind of uh, interact and behave. They are also very ethical um, and uh, very empowering. But same time, I feel that, uh, you know, they, they might be more aggressive in, in their leadership. Um, also, they are probably more um, straightforward. So, you know, if they don't like something or if you made a mistake, they will tell you straight away. And, uh, you know, um, I kind of, uh, I made those mistakes when I, when I came to Australia, you know, I was also quite uh, straightforward. And uh, normally when I would basically do that in Poland, whoever I was talking to, they wouldn't get offended. But I kind of started realizing that, uh, you know, that's not a way to go um, in Australia. So that was um, lessons, a lesson hard, hard learned. How did, you, how did you get the response from that? I mean, I, I kind of uh, realized that they are not very impressed. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of probably felt like I'm telling them off. But, uh, you know, that that's not the idea. And, uh, you know, um, in, in Poland, we actually don't take it that way. So it's, it's actually funny because uh, wherever you go, you, you really need to learn how to interact with uh, locals because, uh, you know, what is... Um, considered uh, normal in um, in one country may be uh, very offensive or, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, taboo in, um, in another country. 
And how do you manage that when you're traveling so much? I mean, you mentioned living in five countries, but then I'd had other countries like France, China, Singapore, Malaysia, you know, there's, there's more than five countries you're traveling and engaging with. So how do you manage the intercultural barriers? So uh, th- those five countries, by the way, um, I lived in uh, those five countries before arriving to Australia. And then, um, you know, I've been in Australia for nearly 12 years, kind of on and off. I also lived in France when I was doing this uh, PhD, and then I left for a year to uh, U.S., I also lived in uh, Singapore and China for some time. So, yeah, uh, look, even Singapore and China are are completely different. You know, you would think that they are so close to each other. um, But again, they are are very different. So I I guess, you know, you you basically need to be very careful in the very beginning when you start interacting and uh, trying to kind of understand uh, local values and local culture and how it's done and what drives it. It's, it's really essential. So you cannot basically, uh, you know, jump into it straight away um, and, and basically try to uh, deploy a leadership or a negotiation style that you would basically deploy elsewhere. You basically need to kind of uh, be uh, a bit shy in, in the beginning, kind of understand how it's done on the other side, how your, um, you know, counterpart kind of behaves and and uh, what drives him, and uh, and then you you have to adjust really. So it's basically starting slowly. Don't don't be aggressive and try to understand uh, local culture. Hmm. And so, what's been the highlight of your career so far? I don't think um, you know. I have uh, career highlights, or you know, I'm not very career driven um you know I'm, I'm very curious about many different things and and i guess that that's what enabled my career but uh, other than that um th- th- there are some people that basically they start university and during uh, their time at university they basically build this uh career development plan 10 years in i i never actually thought about it i basically you know jumped from one position to another and uh you know it was quite um spontaneous most of the time uh, without too much thinking. I basically, um, you know, wanted to explore different opportunities, working at different companies, different places. And uh, those decisions basically drove my kind of career path pathway. It was a bit of a maze, but uh, I, I don't feel like, um, you know, that there was a highlight. Maybe, maybe it's yet to come. He's had such a broad and diverse career already at such a young age. And I ask him what his influences have been and what drives him now for the future. I guess it's actually quite funny to say, but because I've been so driven uh, last couple of years, I simply cannot stop. So, um, you know, I believe that uh, I can do better, I can do more, I can do uh, other things. So that there are still some things that I would like to explore and potentially uh, places that I would like to live. Obviously, um, end of the day, we would probably end up in Australia with my family because, um, you know, my wife really likes it. She doesn't actually want to hear about uh, living somewhere else. My son is Australian, so um, we'll probably end up in Australia. And that, that was the case. Um, last 10 years or or so you know uh, whenever I leave I always come back to Australia it always attracts me 
So that feels like home to you. Pretty much. Um, I haven't been to Poland for five years for a number of different reasons, but uh, I, I still have family and friends. And uh, sometimes I feel that because I left Poland, I actually uh, missed out on many things. You know, I'm not as close with my really good friends as I used to be anymore. I, I obviously talk to my family, but only, uh, you know, virtually. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's not the same as interacting with them on a daily basis. So uh, it feels kind of like you missed out on many things, but at the same time, you know, they also missed out on, on many things that you have done um, abroad. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed my life, whether it was in Australia, in France, or, uh, you know, in Singapore, or even China. Also, those international experiences actually shaped who I am. I, I believe that uh, because of traveling and kind of experiencing those different cultures, I managed to uh, to be more flexible and more adaptable. It's it's also funny because last time when I was in Poland, I have met some friends of my um, friends, and I started talking to them, and they were like, "Oh, your Polish is so good. Where did you learn?" <laughs> so apparently, my my accent is not Polish um, or Polish enough anymore. So um, you know, I I still uh, speak Polish fluently, but obviously they they could. Uh, you know, sense this new accent. So they were like, oh, where did you learn Polish? <laughs> so, yeah, do you, do you feel Polish or do you feel Australian? How do you identify nationalistically? I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, Australian citizen, um, Polish citizen. And I guess uh, I feel both Australian and Polish. Um, I, I really have good memories. So um, for, for that reason, I, I still feel like very Polish and, you know, Poles are very proud. Um, and uh, I, I still, you know, watch uh, Polish movies. I'm listening to Polish music sometimes. And, and then, you know, um, I'm basically part of, of Australia these days. And whatever I do kind of contributes to Australia. And uh, I, I also feel Australian. And do you think you'll raise your son with uh, Polish values? I, I think yes, and I, I would probably like him to learn some Polish. Um, you know, it's it's always valuable to know languages, but uh, you know, um, th there are some historic movies um, that I would also like him to uh, to kind of watch and uh, learn about uh, Polish history. I hope that that he will learn and that um, you know he was born in um, in Australia. He's Australian citizen. My wife is Malaysian, but. Uh, I hope that uh, he will actually feel Polish to some extent as well when he grows up. He's currently uh, 13 months, so, um, you know, he doesn't care about any of that <laughs> just yet. But uh, hopefully when he when he grows up, uh, you know, he will basically have this uh, feel of belonging that he's part of uh, Polish heritage. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today about your career and your life so far? I, I came from Poland and... Uh, I wouldn't say it was hard, but, you know, it, P Polish people um, my age had it definitely harder than, uh, you know, Australians um, our age um, and uh, even other Europeans, Western Europeans. So maybe that they feel like, you know, they are not good enough or, or um, you know, something along these lines. But same time, you know, if, if you really want, you can make it. And uh, also, um, if you feel that you want to explore a um, different field, don't listen to others, just just you know, try to explore it. Whether you will like it or not, you can always go back to your um, original career. 
So exploding is, is definitely good. Although, uh, you know, some people may see it differently, um, especially um, recruiters or HR people. But um, you, you can potentially always kind of uh, explain yourself to them and kind of tell them why you decided to make that move if, if it didn't work. I guess exploring different fields, different um, places is, is always good. It will basically add uh, massive value to, uh, to who you are and, and what you can achieve. Bartuomi, thank you very much for your story and for telling us about your career and life. Thank you. Thank you, Leonie. For more information on this project, go to pabf.com.au. This podcast was brought to you by the Polish Embassy in Australia, Polish Investment and Trade Agency, Polaron, the Freedom and Democracy Foundation, English for Business, and SBS Radio. This was put together by Marchmade Collective.